Hello and welcome to Weekly MTG, the only show brought to you from the fine folks at Wizards of the Coast. And uh, even in today's case for James Wyatt here inside the building, we are we're, we're starting to kind of trickle back in the building a little bit here and there. So it's it's nice to nice to see James back in the space. Jules and I are still at our respective houses, but uh, today's show is going to be a pretty special one because we are previewing Adventures in the Forgotten Realm cards, and Jules and James are two of the many great minds behind this awesome uh, combination of Dungeons and & Dragons and Magic the Gathering. So we have, what is it, six cards to preview today? So we're going we're gonna to preview those six cards, we're going to talk about them, uh, if you have questions for Jules or James, or I, I guess me, I don't know why you would do that, but when Jules and James are here, uh, but you know what, put them in chat. Uh, I'm going to be writing down all the questions and we'll have a little Q&A section at the end, but you know what, we may throw some of your questions out if they make sense in the middle of things too. Throw your questions out there. We'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Uh, but before we get to the previews and the questions and the answers, We've got a little bit of news to go over. So this weekend, we have Strixhaven League Weekend. Coverage uh, begins uh, at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 8 a.m. if you're in the Pacific Coast region like we are. Uh, that's going to happen July 3rd and 4th. Yes, the 4th of July, we will have league play. Um, so you can check that out on this same channel, twitch.tv slash magic. And we will be qualifying some people for the world championship this weekend as well so uh and then the other thing to call your attention to this weekend is a really cool event on magic the gathering arena called mirror mirror where we've taken some cards that were previously banned and we've tweaked them and in this event you can play with those cards in their tweaked versions and make decks with them and so these are things like uh, an omnath that doesn't draw a card when it comes into play an uro that doesn't let you put a land into play a teferi that costs more uh so it's kind of a wild experiment that we're trying out so check out the mirror mirror event this weekend on mtg arena now Let's get to some previews. So uh, before we get to that, uh, Jules and James, why don't you tell us what your role was in creating Adventures in the Forgotten Realms? And we'll start with you, Jules. So I was on the vision design team, and then I led the set design team. So was involved in, from the outset, trying to figure out like what does it actually mean having D&D in a magic set? and how do we represent not just the things in D&D, but what people really love about D&D through the lens of magic, and then sort of shepherded the original vision that team came up with through iterations and uh, further smoothing that out and figuring out what the real cards in the set ought to be and took it all the way through, uh, including through future future league testing and play design and great so if anything goes wrong we can blame you good exactly. to know uh, <laughs> james how, how about you so i was the creative lead for the set which means that i worked with uh, zach stella the art director um for the main set and a team of concept artists to put the world guide together um worked with jules and all the design teams um through 
much of the process in, in a lot of design meetings. Might have brainstormed a couple of card ideas here and there. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, led a team of, of freelance writers in putting the creative text on the cards as well, all the names and flavor text. Mm -hmm. Oh, and writing all the yeah. art descriptions. Oh. <laughs> oh, and that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> well, and and James, you're you're kind of unique in the company too, in that you have long bounced back and forth between Magic and D and D, correct? Well, bouncing very slowly, I guess. I, I spent 14 <laughs> years on the D and D team, then I bounced once and went to the Magic, uh, world building team for what, like six and a half years, and then I bounced back to D and D. So it, it's a, a very slow. Um, oscillation and i don't know if i'm moving much anymore but, <laughs> but while, while i was enough. on the magic team i kept my toes in D, &D work through things like the, yeah. the plane shift pdfs that we did and the, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of D, D books as well some of which were magic related and one of which was not fair enough all right let's get to the previews uh before chat starts wanting to throttle me so <laughs> we are going to <laughs> Uh, so, like I said, we have six previews. Um, one of the questions that we've gotten uh, here and there as we've started previews is if this set uh, would have any reprints. Typically at this time of the year, we have a core set which is mostly reprints or, or has a good deal of reprints in it. And because this is Dungeons and Dragons set, it doesn't lend itself to a ton of reprints. Uh, but we do have some reprints in the set, including this first preview card. So let's take a look at Bag of Holding. So Bag of Holding, if you're not familiar, is a one mana artifact that says, whenever you discard a card, exile that card from your graveyard two and tap it draw a card then discard a card and you can also pay four mana and tap it and sacrifice the bag of holding to return all cards exiled with bag of holding to their owner's hand so jules tell us about how this reprint ended up in the set yeah, so pretty early on in the process we started looking through reprints that might make sense in the set and you know D, &D is really formative in the fantasy genre and has inspired a lot of stuff, including early magic. So a lot of things from D&D do exist on magic cards, but a lot of it was really hard to reuse. Some of it is, you know, way off on power level, either too weak for anyone to play or too strong to want to put into standard. Some of it didn't fit our current design philosophy just making people track things that are difficult and some of it was serviceable but just either didn't mesh with themes in the set we were building or conflicted with some other particular card we really wanted to print uh, but bag of holding was on the early list and uh, managed to dodge all the surroundings and make it through this is an item we see all the time in D and D, so really wanted to make sure to capture it here. So how did how did that list work? Did you start? Did you just have a meeting and say we want to do a bunch of reprints? Let's make a long list of um, ones that might make sense here, and then you kind of went through and cut them down, or how did the reprint process work? Yeah, so we brainstormed some at the start, and then. Uh, maybe James can actually speak better to this. He did one of the main passes through uh, 
D&D books for things that were literal magic card names. Yeah, I did a, a lot of searching at one point, trying to find any any name from a D&D thing that we had used on a magic card ever anywhere. Um, I don't think I did any evaluation of them at that point, like saying no animate dead really just <laughs> won't work. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I leave that sort of call to the professionals. <laughs> um, All right. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, James, tell us about the art on this one as well, because it is a reprint, but it did get updated art. It did, yeah. So the hilarious thing is it's a reprint from M20, which I led the creative text for. So I am responsible for this card being named Bag of Holding um, when it was originally concepted as a stuffed full adventurer satchel. Um, I gave it a bit of D&D flavor because I'm me. Um, <laughs> so in, in reconcepting it, uh, it was just a matter of, of situating it firmly in the Forgotten Realms um, with a beholder in the background and a bard character pulling her instrument out as she flees the beholder. Um, the goal was something that is obviously too large to fit inside the bag. Uh, mm -hmm. I suggested a ladder, a long pole, a canoe, or a musical instrument. I think the musical <laughs> instrument worked well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and is that a character we know or just a random bard? Just a random bard. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's look at the next preview card that we have lined up. So the next one is Goblin Javelinier. So we've got two versions of this card because it gets the monster manual treatment, but Goblin Javelinier is a 1-1 for a single red mana. It is a Goblin Warrior. It has haste, and whenever Goblin Javelinier becomes blocked, it deals one damage to target creature blocking it. So, uh, James, how there, there are a number of monsters in this set that are sort of generic and, and not specific. How did you all decide on kind of which monsters to include, which ones not to, that sort of deal? Well, we were definitely trying to hit resonant monsters, um, both monsters that make you say, oh, I remember that from my monster manual, but also monsters that even if you've never seen a monster manual, you're going to you're gonna get at a basic level what this thing is. Um, goblins live in a, a very happy overlap between magic and D&D, &D, where... Um, they're very much the same in both multiverses. Um, but one of the things I tried to do with this card, uh, at least with the main set art, was to show a female goblin warrior, which is not something we see very often in either magic art or D&D art. Um, but so she's kind of a badass, leaping forward with her glowy javelin thing. Yeah. So and, and Jules, this is this is obviously Raging Goblin Plus. So how did we land on the abilities for this card? Yeah, so we have this sort of constant struggle in set design where we want cards all along the mana curve people can play, but one mana creatures generally are way more effective when you can pack a deck full of them. And so it's hard to make ones that you want to play with in limited decks that aren't 
all in super aggressive without causing problems for standard play. So mm -hmm. one area we often try to look is how we can overlap them with set themes that specifically exist in limited to give them a little more play. And we realized we had this bevy of equipment in red and white and the pack tactics ability word in red and green mm -hmm. uh, found on cards like battle cry goblin that whenever you attack with creatures with total power six or greater you get an effect um and so a uh, haste creature really lets a cheap haste creature really lets you pick up the late game equipment and get in or surprisingly turn on pack tactics and you know being a goblin might matter a little bit in this set too <laughs> All right, let's take a look at our next card. And reminder, I'm 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 writing down questions from chat, so thank you for everyone who's put one in so far. Uh, but as you come up with questions, feel free to put them in chat. We'll we'll send them to Jules and James at the end of the show. Uh, next question, a little different than a goblin jam in the air. We have power of persuasion. So Power of Persuasion is a blue sorcery for two generic and a blue mana. It says, choose target creature and opponent controls, then roll a d20. On a roll of 1 to 9, return it to its owner's hand. On a roll of 10 to 19, its owner puts it on the top or bottom of their library. And on a roll of 20, gain control of it until the end of your next turn. Uh, Jules, there's a lot going on with this card. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah. So, in addition to all of the things you'll find in D&D books, we really wanted to capture a lot of moments that are really emblematic of the game. And this was one of the first ones we called out, where you're not always fighting. The party encounters some sort of sentient being that is obstructing your goals or wants to attack you or who knows what. And you decide you're going to try to talk them down. And doesn't matter that they're working for the great evil overlord and are sworn to slay you and all you hold dear, you think maybe we could be friends. And you pick the very charismatic bard or rogue and send them on up to talk and roll your dice and see how it goes. Uh, so we knew we really wanted to capture that moment even before we had dice rolling in the set. And once we added it, we realized this sort of like temporary removal spell where you saw how much you got them to actually step aside or cooperate with you was the perfect execution. Nice. Um, I do have a rules question from chat that I think we can answer. Um, Great. Who decides where to put the creature when it is uh, a roll 10 to 19? Uh, the owner of the card will decide where to put it owner of the creature yeah sorry of the creature itself so yeah all right um and this is also a great place uh since this is the first d20 card we're talking about what was sort of um because this is the first time we've done dice rolling in a blackboarded set so what was kind of the um obviously it's a big part of dungeons and dragons so it makes complete sense in the set. Uh, but what was kind of the philosophy that the design team had when putting rolling a d20 on cards? Yeah, so we knew this was going to be somewhat divisive. It's this moment of really fun tension that a lot of people really enjoy, but 
it's also a point that is out of the player's hands. And a lot of people play magic really for that sense of mastery and carefully making all of their decisions. So we mm-hmm. took a few different approaches. One was to sort of focus where the dice rolling cards are. They appear mostly in blue and red in the set. So it's easier to opt into doing it a bunch if it's something you're really excited about or play a different strategy if it's not. Um, And also in how we aimed where the cards were headed, we didn't make a lot of dice rolling cards aimed at competitive constructed formats, trying to keep Mm -hmm. them clear of that and mostly exist in limited and more casual play. But the biggest final piece was sort of how the cards work. There Mm -hmm. are a few dice rolling cards that might do something wildly different depending what you roll for people who are really excited for that jump into the unknown but the majority of them are set up so that you can still make really clear intelligent decisions about what you're doing with the card even before knowing the outcome of the die roll so for instance Mm -hmm. with power of persuasion you know that you almost certainly want to take your opponent's best creature off the table regardless of what outcome you get you're not casting the card unsure if it's going to do something productive for you or not it's always going to clear the blocker out of the way mm-hmm. all right uh james tell us about the art concept for this card so the art here shows a dragonborn sorcerer uh interacting with an etten which is a, a two-headed giant um in sort of a another classic moment the idea of getting the two-headed giant to argue with itself um, I'm pretty sure the scene was actually inspired by an encounter in Madness at Gardmore Abbey, which is an adventure I was the lead for in 2011, um, where there is an Etten standing guard outside of a, a, a hall like this. Um, but so it's that idea that if you're charismatic enough, as Jules was saying, you know, you can persuade someone to help you out. You can get the Etten to argue with itself and uh, keep itself busy or whatever. Uh, so it's just a, a lot of fun as a role-playing moment. Great. All right, let's look at the next card on our list. So we're about halfway through. So next up is Rhyme Shield Frost Giant. So we have another one with the monster frame. So uh, this is a common 4-5 blue creature giant warrior for three and two blue mana. And it's got ward three. And you can see it's got the monster manual treatment there. So uh, let's start actually, this card's pretty straightforward, a a solid common. Uh, James, let's start with you. How did we decide which cards got the monster manual treatment? Oh, geez, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If if Jules knows the answer, that's fine, too. Yeah, there was sort of a big balancing act in a spreadsheet we had, but we wanted to make sure to capture a lot of the really classic monsters. We knew we were going to get in old art style, so especially things that appeared in the original monster manual, we really wanted to make sure we got as well as get a good distribution across colors and rarities so that you know people would 
get to open a lot of these and see the treatment and also mm -hmm. find cards they were really excited to own in it as well. Okay. I gotta say, Jeff um, D. Who, oh, good. I Jeff was just D. gonna go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was absolutely my favorite artist when I was uh, a young teenager looking at first edition DD books. He's got a very comic booky style I just loved, and seeing mm -hmm. his work on cards that I worked on now is pretty freaking amazing. Mm hmm. So talk a little bit about that, because this set did quite a bit of that where we brought D&D &D artists to do things like this with the Monster Manual Frame and, and other versions that hadn't before worked on Magic. So talk a little bit about that process and idea. Um, I think that process is largely attributable to Tom Jencott, who was the art director for um, for the our special treatment stuff. Uh, he managed mm -hmm. to use his contacts and reach out to a whole bunch of people. I, I'm still kind of stunned. I, I keep watching what is previewed to see when certain things we can't talk about yet show up because heads are going to explode. I think some heads already have exploded seeing work from <laughs> um, Jeff D and Jeff Easley and Larry Elmore. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I, I'm still freaking out about some of these things. Yeah. It's pretty funny cool. though. I'm realizing now this is the second Jeff D piece where he gave us a male a male creature when the original was female. Hmm. <laughs> Intriguing. You can see the D on his little signature in there now yep. that we get closer. All right. Next up, we're going to go with Wizard's Spellbook, which is our next card. This is another dice rolling card. It is an artifact for five and two blue mana for seven mana total. You can tap it and exile target instant or sorcery card from a graveyard. And that lets you roll a d20, activate this only as a sorcery. When you roll that d20, if you roll a one through nine, you get to copy that card, the instant or sorcery that was removed. And then you may cast the copy. On a 10 through 19, you also copy that card and you may cast that copy by paying one rather than paying its mana cost. And if you roll a 20, you get to copy each card exiled with wizard spellbook. So if you've done this multiple times, it would cast multiple spells, and then you may cast any number of the copies without paying its mana cost. So there's a lot going on here, Jules. Tell us about this card. Yeah, so th this card was sort of a melding of top-down and bottom-up designs, and we found two <laughs> that meshed really well. Uh, when we were thinking about rare dice rolling cards that we knew we weren't trying to aim at competitive formats. We asked ourselves like in casual play, what's going to be the most exciting thing. And mm -hmm. one of the big answers is making for a really big memorable moment when something awesome happens, but we don't want to just have a sweet 20 effect on a sorcery that over the course of your long commander game, you might draw and then cast and then, often won't do anything particularly cool and it could take a lot of games before you get the awesome moment. We want some way that you can roll dice multiple times so that it won't take so many games before you get to have the awesome moment with the card. Mm -hmm. And so we came up with this idea of like, 
a card that'll somehow give you access to another card and then maybe you get them all if you roll high enough so it'll sort of build up and do something awesome and mm -hmm. ask ourselves what sorts of cards it should work with where this should go in the set and at the same time we were looking to make top-down versions of a bunch of things people recognize from D&D, one of which is the mm -hmm. wizard's spellbook, where they write down spells and then have access to them later if they can find a scroll to copy them from. And we realized these fit together perfectly and came up with a design in this vein working for instants and sorceries. Very cool. All right, James, tell us about, we've, we've already had a couple compliments on the art in chat. Tell us about this art. Well, this art makes me so happy because, um, like, I I submitted to the artist as reference some of the other tomes that we've done, which are majestic illuminated manuscripts that look carefully preserved in a museum. But a wizard's spellbook is something that the wizard carries with them wherever they go into the darkest, dankest, dirtiest dungeons. So we wanted it to look well-loved and, and well-used and <laughs> dirty. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I just love this this piece. You know, these scraps of paper sticking out at all angles and stuff taped onto the page. Not taped, but looks like waxed in. Um, it is definitely a a um, a tool that is used regularly, not a museum piece preserved for display. Mm -hmm. Very cool. All right, let's look at our final preview card. And reminder to everyone, I am writing down all the questions. We got a bunch of good ones ready to go, but feel free to put more in the chat. Uh, our final preview card is Wild. Um, I had to read it a few times before I got it, but let's take a look at the Demi Lich. So for four blue mana, you get a creature skeleton wizard that is a 4-3, and this is a mythic. This spell costs blue mana less to cast for each instant and sorcery spell you've cast this turn. When Demilich attacks, exile up to one target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard, copy it, and you may cast the copy. You may cast Demilich from your graveyard, by exiling four instants and or sorcery cards from your graveyard in addition to paying its other costs. Uh, James, why don't you start by telling us what is the Demi-Lich? So a Demi-Lich is the most advanced form of Lich. Um, a Lich, of course, being an undead spellcaster. And the idea is that uh, when a wizard has preserved their existence in undead form for ages and ages their body has completely disintegrated into a cloud of dust you can see in the art just the the vague suggestion of hands and a body um, formed from crumbled bone dust behind the skull which is all that's left it has gems for eyes and teeth um, and most of the time the the lich's spirit is off traveling the plains and and uh, delving into deep arcane secrets, but if its resting place is disturbed, then the skull will rise up and do really terrible things. The first Demi-Lich actually in the adventure Tomb of Horrors in the late 70s, whenever that was, um, which has a reputation and a well-earned reputation as a killer dungeon. It's just a, a nightmare of a monster. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> meant to punish intruders into resting places. Uh, okay, Jules, now it's time for you to explain that text box. Yeah, Whew. there's a lot going on here. Um, <laughs> so, sort of the top line on this card was, again, trying to find this being composed just of magic now. And so we've got a lot of things trying to tie that together, the cost reduction and the coming back from the graveyard by using up your other spells let you sort of just end up with a creature as a consequence of casting a bunch of instants and sorceries. And then the Demi Witch is an extremely powerful spellcaster in its own right. So this card is also bringing them back. Uh, we mm -hmm. were hoping to sort of capture uh, patterns you might have seen with arc like Phoenix decks in the past with. Mm -hmm decks full of instants and sorceries trying to beat down a little bit with a creature and this time we tried to see if we could tie it in a little more closely and get uh, more variable play depending on what instants and sorceries you use with it mm -hmm. uh, we do have a rules question uh from chat that we should answer uh does the cost mm -hmm. re reduction apply if you're casting it from the graveyard yes it does so you can cast this for no mana after you've played your four spells in a turn by exiling those same four cards. Very cool. Uh, obviously, this card looks very strong. How how good would you say it is? Uh, well, you know, there are a lot of formats, so it's hard to know <laughs> everywhere. I worked with the play design team a lot, but I'm not representative of them. But we certainly played this card a lot in our standard testing. and found a lot of cool things to do with it. So mm -hmm. I think you can find success with it in the outside world too. Sounds good. All right, let's, we have a bunch of questions and we have about half an hour left. So let's use the rest of the show to answer some of these questions. Um, let's start, uh, James, what is the difference between halflings and Kithkin? Um, mostly the world they live on. <laughs> uh, Kithian is, isn't a word that D&D ever used, so it would have felt strange to put it on a, a card in this set. Um, yeah, I mean, there are certainly similarities. They're both small people that tend toward a white alignment, live in communities together, and uh, hold communal values, but calling a halfling a kithkin would have felt really strange here. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, let we, me we ask a, a broader of version of this. Oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, yeah, just early on, James and I and some other D&D folks had a lot of conversations trying to figure out which magic creature types really synced up or didn't and what needed a new mm -hmm. type or what could be more backwards compatible. That was, that was going to be my question, yeah. 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 So, uh, give an example of a a D and D creature type that you ended up not translating to magic, but instead kind of squinted and gave it something else magic related. Like 
all of the illithids being horrors, I think, is a big thing here. There are a few in the set, and mm-hmm. we talked for a while about whether they merited their own type. Uh, but at the end of the day, they just felt so well represented by the type we already had. It didn't seem worth it. All right. Uh, Another example might be Dragonborn being dragon type, mm-hmm. right? In the same mm-hmm. way that an Avon is a bird warrior or a bird cleric or whatever, and a Leonin is a mm-hmm. lion with a class, or a Loxodon is an elephant with a class, a Dragonborn is a dragon with a class. Makes sense. Uh, the next question actually is for me. Uh, why did you guys decide on such a short and condensed spoiler release for this set? Um, we've been experimenting with different uh, cadences for our preview cycles. And, you know, we've, we've done anything from a week to we've done three weeks. We're, we're hearing a lot of positive chatter about doing these shorter preview seasons. And, and some of it depends on external factors or the larger schedule. Um, but we're, we're always happy to hear feedback on, on whether people like the short or longer preview seasons. But we, we used to adhere pretty strictly to two-week preview seasons. And we've, we've moved past that being the default and, and kind of looked at a set and everything and kind of decided what made the most sense. So um, that kind of answers that question. Um, Next up, uh, probably we'll start with jewels for this one. Uh, unsets played more with D6s, and only sort of D&D has used a D20 in the past. Uh, was there any consideration to having D6 cards in AFR as well as D20s? Yeah, so we we did talk about what dice types we should use a fair bit, and mostly concluded that for the main set here, we didn't want to ask players to bring a bunch of different things. Uh, and a lot of people were already going to use 20-sided dice for life totals or just having one thing on hand. D6s were the next most common, and we considered doing both. A lot of people bring them for counters, but ultimately decided they weren't quite ubiquitously around enough to be worth making people bring extra things for the standard play. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question, I'm actually going to, I've been trying to go sort of in chronological order of questions people have asked, but I'm going to skip to one that people are asking right now that says, when are the commander decks previewed? Um, it's not that the commander decks are actually previewed on July 2nd. You'll see the face cards on July 2nd. Uh, the full deck lists will be coming July 9th and 10th. I uh, just didn't want that misinformation to keep going. Uh, next up, um, I, I think Jules touched on this a little bit earlier. So how did you decide which cards got which treatments? Um, for example, our owl bear got the book treatment, but Froghemoth got the extended borderless treatment. Right. So, yeah, I touched on this earlier. Uh, some of the factors at work here were definitely the extended treatment only goes on to rares and mythic rares. So lower down on the rarity scheme, there was, uh, you know, 
more weight behind making sure we got some cool way to show off this monster, but different people prefer different treatments. So we didn't end up going all the way one way on one thing, especially with newer monsters. Mm-hmm. All right, next question. Okay, I'm going to read a card before I read this question. So this question is about the Tarrasque. Um, so I'm going to pull up this so I can read what the card does for anyone who doesn't know what the card does. Um, so the Tarrasque is a nine mana, six and three green legendary creature dinosaur. It's a 10-10. Uh, the Tarrasque has haste and ward 10 as long as it was cast. And whenever the Tarrasque attacks, it fights target creature defending player control. So before I get to the question, uh, oh, there it's on the screen. Uh, James, what is the Tarrasque in the world of D&D? Um, it is what we call a Titan, which is a, a small category of monsters that also includes Krakens and um, Empyreans, which are sort of the classic, uh, almost godlike Greek Titans. These are um, ancient creatures that date back to primal wars among the gods. Um, so we don't go into to a lot more detail than that about um, what um, what they are, what they were used for, but it, it's a, a weapon of mass destruction in in D&D's uh, multiverse. Um, it, it is thought to be unique um, and also believed to lie uh, inert for long periods of time, but when it wakes up, it can level kingdoms. All right. So the question then, and, and we'll go to Jules for this, is was there a conversation on making the Tarrasque better? So James was just talking about how monstrous this thing is. Um, was it? Was there any conversation about making this card even more devastating than it already is? Yeah, we certainly talked about it a lot. And a lot of the spot we ran into was things like the Eldrazi and White Steel Colossus have a bunch of text to keep you from cheating them into play various ways, and trying to make this even more devastating on the table was basically going to have to require us to cut off both players' ability to easily reanimate it and to really feasibly cast it for mana, uh, going up the mana curve a lot. And... Magic already has a lot of really, really devastating creatures high up the curve, and we felt like ultimately the card was just going to end up less satisfying trying to compete with those and not doing something even more busted than you can already do at the very top of the curve versus being a card that people could play with more frequently. Okay. Uh, next up... We have, uh, this will be a question for Jules. What are the limited archetypes of this set? Yeah, so we've seen a few of the signposts on commons, but not all of them yet. But both white, blue, and white, black have sort of venture into the dungeon themed decks with slightly different focuses on how much they're attacking a lot versus chipping away more in blue, white. Uh, the blue, black deck is sort of focused on sneaking through and evasion, 
hitting your opponent directly with some small creatures. Uh, Black Red has a sort of treasure-based deck. Red and Green focuses on pack tactics, attacking with six or more total power of creatures. Green-White is looking at gaining life. And then got Blue-Red rolling dice. And Black-Green looking at having creatures die. Red and White is equipment matters. And Blue-Green's a sort of classic ramp strategy building up to giant monsters cool um next question and, and pack tactics is a good uh transition to this question because it's it is the rare at least in this set uh flavor word that gets used across multiple cards most of the flavor words in this set are used on one card individually. Uh, how did you choose which cards should get the flavor word and which do not? Yeah, so this was sort of an intersection of James and I, but a lot of it was really going by feel. Some stuff was obviously awesome because it was the name of exactly an ability that's appearing in your Dungeons and Dragons books and makes a lot of sense. Some stuff was just too cool feeling not to put in. Like, mm -hmm. I think my favorite in this context is Grim Wanderer's tragic backstory. It's like that doesn't <laughs> appear in your D and D book a lot. Uh, for reference, this card is a one in a black for a goblin warlock five three with flash and tragic backstory. Cast the spell only if a creature died this turn. Um, but this is such a staple of storytelling in D&D parties. It's, it, you know, everyone who's played more than a few D&D sessions with different groups has run across some character with a deep, dark, troubled past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for, for the mass, um, mass okay. meaning for things that were spell names or the names of abilities that monsters use occasionally, but there there's just a couple like this that i agreed with jules it's too too good to uh might as well just let it let it in <laughs> under the wire let it slide cool uh next question here we'll do this pop quiz style and see if you guys actually know the answer to this um because I, I do, but only because I'm looking at the documents. Uh, how many of those Monster Manual Showcase arts are in this set? Do you remember? Do, do, do. De definitely not an exact number. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, um, the Monster Manual version specifically... Uh, looks to have 51. Um, the, the, the module, the ones on the lands, uh, that one looks to have nine, three, six, nine. Um, the dragons, the, Yeah, the dragons. Yeah, how many, how many dragons? So the, the dragons in this set, for those who don't know, have their own um, borderless treatment. So how many of those are there, Jules? Right, that those we've got twelve of. Okay, and yeah, those are the yeah, those are the treatments we'll talk about. Cool. Um, 
<laughs> Next up, uh, can we see a foil monster manual card? So we don't have any physical cards with us today, although James is at the office. Maybe if he ran away, could rustle one up. We're not going to do that. Um, the We will be showing off physical versions of the cards like we normally do. Uh, we're working towards showing off some on social. Uh, and then Weekly MTG will do a box opening like we normally do to show off all the different treatments. So those will be coming up. We don't have them for this show, but we will have them. Um, who came up with the idea to include the randomized D20s instead of spin downs in the pre-release kits? That was a really good idea. It's a good question. I don't remember exactly, but <laughs> it came up basically immediately when we started talking about rolling D20s set. And it was like, look, not everyone's going to be okay with rolling a spin down. We've got to get real D20s to people somehow. Mm -hmm. so, All right. Next question. Let's see. Uh, how many mythics are in this set? Do you know that off the top of your head? Yeah, th this one's got 20 mythics in it. So th this is sort um, of a new normal. It's been hard to see with all the double-faced cards in the last few sets, but this is where we're planning to be going forward for sets without double-faced cards. Gotcha. Um, okay, so next question. There is no new core set. Uh, can you talk about the rotation for standard? When is the next rotation and what will rotate out? Thanks. Uh, so there isn't a new core set, uh, but this effectively takes the place of that release in the calendar year. So uh, rotation will happen coming up with Midnight Hunt. So we'll um, rotate out sets from two years ago, and the last year of sets, Zendikar Forward, will all stay in standard. Um, I think we already answered this one. All right. Uh, can we hope for a Minsk and Boo card? Pretend you can say anything. <laughs> you you can answer this question. Yeah. You can totally hope. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all I'm going to say is uh, watch Good Morning Magic. Maybe you'll get a little clue about Minsk and Boo. <laughs> all right. Uh, next up... Let's see, we answered that one. Um, are there any rules the judges will need to know about players rolling D20s in competitive events? I can answer that one, actually. So the mechanics article that's out covers that sort of broadly, but we also provide uh, more specific guidance to judges um, whenever a new set releases so we we create documents that uh dive deeper into that sort of stuff the the tournament rules documents so that'll all be covered there i don't know them off the top of my head but the answer is yes um all right here's another good question for you too um how did you pick what characters in D D to bring over and then um we'll as an addendum, how did you choose which legends appeared in the set? And are they going to be in the commander decks, if not in the main set? So talk about the process of choosing which characters made it to the set and to the commander decks. 
it is a, a complicated process. Um, I mean, some of it, some of it is, I guess, I guess you'd say some of it is top down and some of it is bottom up. Like, there are some characters we knew had to be in the set. Um, mm -hmm. Tiamat, um, Dredd, uh, and others that. Um, that the design team brainstormed and came up with. And then there's others where it's like, okay, we need an uncommon legendary cleric here, James, who can this be? Um, where I spent a fair amount of time digging into um, sources, both well-known and obscure to find uh, good matches for a lot of these characters. Um, Yeah, so it, and that applies across the main set and the commander set, where um, the, the same thing happened with the face cards for the commanders, who I guess you'll see tomorrow. Um, they those were definitely uh, designed first and had to be um, matched to actually new characters. They are a, a brand new adventuring party. I'll spoil that early. Um, Mm. because they're tuned to the mechanics of the decks. Uh, but then there will also be familiar characters tucked away in those decks as well. Cool. Anything to add, Jules? Um, yeah, j just that a lot of it's sort of convergence to a point we as James mentioned, had characters we need we needed to get, and when we didn't like our first six iterations of Grits, well, we made another iteration of Grits until we got one we liked. <laughs> but uh, right, a, a lot of these were spots for archetypal characters where we're like, we know a lot of people love to play this sort of character. We're gonna want someone like that, and then tried to figure out the right fit as both card mechanics and the tone of the strategy surrounding them gelled. Cool. And for a lot of characters, I was leaning on um, on recent D&D adventures uh, more than old novels or, or things um, that a broad audience might not be as familiar with. So um, there's definitely a wide range of characters from lots of different places. Cool. Um, I'm going to jump over a couple questions in the chronological sense to get to two really quick. Uh, for for everyone asking about specific characters and whether they're not in the set, I know we did it with Minsk and Boo. Uh, we we kind of hinted that direction. Um, any other questions about specific characters, you'll just have to wait and see. Um, now, moving to a different question, I just wanted to get to this one just because I saw this person in chat. Can we put Goblin Javelinier up on the screen real quick? I want to see something. So um, we had, yeah. So Mike Jordana uh, is in chat. So oh, awesome. uh yeah, so do you want to, he was asking what you said about Goblin Javelinier. So do you want to share a little bit more about that um, art request, James? Oh my gosh, what did I say? Um, <laughs> let's see, one of the things I said was, uh, this was trying to 
do something we don't often see in either magic or D&D, which was a female goblin warrior. Um, so I'm, I'm now looking up the card in our database to see what I actually wrote about it. There it is, CRO1. It was a pretty straightforward art description. She's aggressive and fierce, the mouth of a cave in a rocky canyon, which is actually a nod to <laughs> keep on the Borderlands Dungeon Module B2 from 1980-something. Um, a female goblin in leather armor throwing a javelin, holding a curved sword with a nasty-looking edge in her other hand. And Mike did an awesome job of giving us this goblin. Very cool. All right, um, back to some of the other previous questions. Okay, this one came from uh, another name we might recognize in chat, uh, Yul Larson. Uh, so this one's for Jules. Well, there's definitely a random factor to magic. Some of it is more obvious and other less so. Are you worried if the uh, D20 mechanics could create more feel-bad moments? Yeah, that was definitely something we were conscious of the whole time and again like i said a lot of the cards are not aimed at competitive constructed but even for competitive limited we tried to ensure that a lot of the ones that would be showing up in draft a lot were less likely to be this huge deciding game ending factor right then as opposed to tilting the scales of the game a little bit and then giving players more time to adapt to that new setup and make decisions based on it. Great. Uh, let's see. Next question. Here's an easy yes or no question. Are we getting dungeon cards in booster packs? Yep. About a third of draft boosters, and I don't remember the proper percentages, but some set boosters will have dungeons for you. And I think the pre-release packs contain all three, correct? Yeah, the pre-release packs and the bundles both contain all three. Cool. Um, here's, a, here's another interesting question. I was actually wondering the answer to this one itself. Uh, since Bard is a creature type now, do the existing Bards uh, get errata? I believe so. I can't say with 100% confidence, but I know we did that for uh ranger you saw quarian ranger reprinted in modern horizons 2 with a pre-updated creature type so i believe bards should get the mm -hmm. same cool so watch for that we always do a um a, an update to oracle with every set uh usually I have to look at the calendar usually that happens once the set is fully revealed so it'll be next week sometime uh, but that's where i would look for um any any changes to new bards um so next up with adventures in the forgotten so this is a question for Jules. so traditionally core sets are uh, not always but traditionally core sets are set at a lower power level uh, for standard than than some of the other releases. Uh, was that something in consideration for Adventures in the Forgotten Realms? Did you treat it like a normal booster release when it comes to power level? How, how did you all think of that? Yeah, so we certainly 
weren't intentionally set up to say we've got to pull punches here, but uh, certainly being the eighth set in standard, it's hard to make a huge shakeup without overshadowing sets that come afterwards. And there were a lot of goals to serve here. So we, we didn't force cards to fit into standard quite as much as we might in a normal magic set if it was going to disrupt the card really being a perfect representation of the thing it ought to be. Uh, but mm -hmm. there are still definitely plenty of cards aimed at seeing competitive standard play in the set. Cool. All right, so we are just about out of time, and I want to make sure that before we go, we go back through the preview cards one more time. So let's just cycle through the six cards one more time, if we could, please, Sean. For anyone who missed these, so Bag of Holding, a reprint from M20. And then next up... Goblin Javelinier with fantastic art from Mike Jordana. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Power of Persuasion. And then Rhyme Shield Frost Giant, which gets the Monster Manual treatment with Jeff D. Wizard Spellbook, which can do some pretty crazy things in Commander. And finally, Demi-Lich, which is powerful and weird and crazy and definitely coming to a game near you. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Jules. Thank you, James, for sharing all of your Adventures in the Forgotten Realms knowledge. Um, we appreciate everyone tuning in. So um, next week, we will have Gavin Verhe on the show. We're going to do our pre-release primer. The full set will be live by that point, uh, and it'll be available on Arena. So we'll, we'll do a little gameplay. We'll talk through the set. Um, look for the full card image gallery early next week. Uh, and then look for the commander decks to be shown July 9th and 10th. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.